Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Muscle for Life. I am Mike Matthews, and I thank you for joining me today to hear my little chat with Dr. Laura Kummerly. And we talk about uh, a variety of things. We talk about ninja warrior training, which uh, she has firsthand experience with, of course. We talk about the benefits of body weight training, how to train around repetitive stress injuries, as well as when to see a physical therapist and more. And in case you're not familiar with Laura, she is a former collegiate gymnast turned full-time orthopedic physical therapist. And if you follow her on Instagram, if you just search for her last name, it's pretty unique, she will come up. It's spelled K-U-M-M-E-R-L-E. You'll see that she posts a lot of unique gymnastic and ninja warrior training inspired workouts. And she is a part of hashtag Team Legion and an example of the perfect fit for the type of person we want to work with. She's educated and she's passionate and she helps a lot of people get fitter and stronger. And so if you want to learn how to train like a ninja warrior and what that even looks like, if you want to learn about some bodyweight exercises that you can incorporate into your training regimen uh, profitably, as well as a physical therapist's take on training around repetitive stress injuries and not making them worse, because that's step one. If you have a repetitive stress injury, you have to figure out how to not continually aggravate it without just sitting on the couch all day and doing nothing. And then you have to figure out how to make it better. But fortunately, many times, if you can just figure out the first part, if you can just figure out how to stop pissing your shoulder off or your knee off or your hip off or whatever, the second part, the resolution of the problem follows naturally. So if any of that has piqued your interest, I think you are going to like this episode. Also, if you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, definitely check out my health and fitness books, including the number one best-selling weightlifting books for men and women in the world, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger, and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger, as well as the leading flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef. Now, these books have sold well over 1 million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best body ever. And you can find them on all major online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes and Noble stores. And I should also mention that you can get any of the audiobooks 100% free when you sign up for an Audible account. And this is a great way to make those pockets of downtime like commuting, meal prepping, and cleaning more interesting, entertaining, and productive. And so if you want to take Audible up on this offer, and if you want to get one of my audio audiobooks for free, just go to www.buylegion, that's B-U-Y, legion.com slash audible and sign up for your account. So again, if you appreciate my work and if you want to see more of it, and if you want to learn time-proven and evidence-based strategies for losing fat, building muscle, and getting healthy, and strategies that work for anyone and everyone, regardless of age or circumstances, please do consider picking up one of my best-selling books. Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, and The Shredded Chef for my favorite fitness-friendly recipes. Hey, Laura. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Just uh, like I was telling you before we recorded, settled into my new spot in Florida. And I didn't think I would ever move back to Florida, at least not for a long time, but here I am. And uh, it's hot. It's Florida and it's summer. Yes. <laughs> lots of rain in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think where I'm at, so I'm in Ocala. I think it's even more of a thing here than where I grew up. I grew up in the Tampa Bay area and uh, the, the temperature is consistently a little bit lower, but you know, it's like three, four, maybe five degrees. I guess I'll take it, but it's, you know, does it feel like 105 or 101? Eh, yep. it, it feels like the pits of hell. Yeah. So I actually went to the University of Florida. Um, so I'm very familiar with the weather around there. <laughs> yep. Yep. But uh, otherwise, I, I like the area. I prefer this uh, little spot in Florida over where I grew up because where I grew up has water and beaches. And that's what 
brings people to, to the whole Tampa Bay area. But I, I never really cared too much about the water or the beach. Like, yeah, I did some wakeboarding when I was younger. That was fun. I lived on the beach for a bit. I guess that was cool. It's pretty. But where I'm at uh, now is not your typical Florida, just flat swamp palm trees. Uh, it, it, there's a little bit of undulation. It actually reminds me a little bit of where I came from, uh, Virginia, not as much undulation. You don't have mountains there, but it's very green here in Ocala and you do have, uh, I guess you could call them hills. And mm. this is, uh, it's, a uh, my first experience being a, a rural person, I guess, living on a farm. Yep. That'll be an exciting adventure though. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I prefer it. I, I went from the DC suburbs and I, I learned that suburban living, eh, I just don't think it's really for me. And uh, DC suburbs, definitely not for me. <laughs> yeah. Traffic. Yeah. 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 Among other issues. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks again for, for taking the time to do this. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things that I have not written or spoken about at all. So that's always fun for me and the listeners. And then, and then one thing uh, that I have spoken about, I have written about, I have had other people on the podcast to talk about, but uh, it's always helpful to have other experts share their thoughts. And that's, uh, that's working around injuries, rehabbing injuries, and particularly repetitive stress injuries. Um, but let's start with the, the, the new stuff. Let's start with uh, training for a Ninja Warrior competition. And maybe you want to start with explaining why I'm asking you about that. So I actually competed on season 11 of American Ninja Warrior. Um, so that was an amazing experience. Lots of fun. Unfortunately, they did not air my run, so I have yet to see it. Um, oh, you didn't even get footage. Correct. I did not get footage. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm kind of okay with it because my excuse was I needed shoulder surgery at the time, so I wasn't able to prepare as much as I wanted to. Um, so now that I've since had that shoulder surgery and recovered from that, um, hopefully I will have another chance in the future um, for some sort of ninja competition. So. We'll see about that as how, how do times you, change. I, I've, I've only seen, I don't know if I've watched a whole episode of, uh, there are probably multiple shows now like that, but I of course know what it entails, but how do you make it onto one of those shows? Or maybe it's just one show. I'm not too familiar with the, with the space. Yeah. So American Ninja Warrior, they have like their traditional ones. They actually now have a junior one. They have team ones. So there's yeah. variations of the ninja um, training and, or the Ninja Warrior series. Um, but essentially you apply, um, and then you get selected to compete in like a regional qualifier. And then basically like a hundred people or so, um, compete and only, I think like eight to 10 get aired. So there's actually a lot more competition going on behind the scenes. And the ones that get aired, those are the people who do the best, I'm assuming. Um, or have like the best story or have a good reaction from a family member in the crowd or oh, things like it. that. You have to remember it's a reality TV show sure, sure. as it's well. First so, and foremost, um, it's entertainment. Yes. <laughs> Correct. And how did you do in, in your run? So I actually ended up falling on the second obstacle. It was a dynamic upper body um, obstacle. and Your shoulder wouldn't shoulder. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to some extent. Um And I think it was more so the lack of being able to train because of that injury, um, the obstacles specifically, because I can do a fair amount um, in my apartment, but at some point you do need to go to a ninja gym and train. Um, And where I currently live, the closest ninja gym is over an hour away. So um, with, at the time, being in a postdoctoral residency program, working full-time, it was a bit hard to get over there as well. So I'm apparently full of excuses today (laughs) about that. Um, But that's kind of the situation that I was in at the time. Yeah. I could pull the the boomer card on you and tell you, you just should have worked harder. What's wrong with you? Yes. (laughs) So definitely probably could have done better, but um, priorities at the time as well. So, yeah. yeah. So what does the training for that type of thing look like? So obviously you have to have like a good 
base of strength, body awareness, um, and things like that before you even start training for it. Um, and then it's really what stand makes it stand out compared to other types of training is I would say probably like the power focus, especially with the upper body. So you have to do like dynamic things like laches, which is like swinging from one bar to another or one ring to another or something like that, which a lot of even upper body sports don't require. Um, So it's hanging and swinging from things. Um, And then you also have to have the specific obstacle training um, because unlike other things, you are running across objects that move um, or things like that. So you don't really get that exposure to that stimulus any other way besides that obstacle training. And it's hard to mimic that with other trainings. Um, and then obviously you also have to have like a cardio base cause you're going from one obstacle to another. And especially like the grip endurance um, can also play a role too, especially towards the end of the run. And how do you program all of that into, let's just say a week. Like I'm sure that that's probably the general approach is, or, or is the, is the training, uh, block longer than that? Is it a two week block that then repeats and what kind of stuff are you doing? Are you doing some weightlifting or just traditional strength training for that base of, of strength and force? And, uh, of course that translates into power and then supplementing that with more specificity. Yeah. So I would definitely say it varies a lot from person to person. Um, I would probably say most people have some sort of basic strength program that they're following, and then they can incorporate a little bit more specific grip work and obstacle training a couple times a week. I know people sometimes go, it really depends on more so the access that they have, unfortunately, to a ninja gym or some other setup like that. The ninja gym, I'm assuming, is where you go for the specific obstacle training? Yes. So they'll have obstacles set up. They'll have the warped wall um, and things like that. And then there's actually a fair amount of people now that have like setups in their backyard of a couple obstacles or things like that. So people also do that too. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. And, And for grip training, what is commonly done? So I would say a fair amount of ninjas actually also do rock climbing. Yeah. So that'll work the grip um, or similar grip exercises to what rock climbers would do, whether it's like the hangboard um, or things like that. And for somebody, I, I just, again, this is a, this might be a dumb question, but I just don't know enough about the, I, I didn't even know there is such a thing as a ninja gym. Um, but uh, is this something that is even remotely accessible to, let's say just uh, somebody listening, let's say they're fit, uh, they're pretty strong, they have good cardio, and it sounds like fun to them. You mentioned there are regional qualifiers and, and then you can work your way up. Is it even feasible for somebody listening to say, you know, that sounds like fun, Um, just like how they could say, you know, that Spartan race sounds like fun. I'm going to I'm going to train a little bit for that and see if I can, you know, do something in a a Spartan race. So I would definitely say um, there are or ninja gyms are more common in cities. So um, I know Tampa, for example, um, has a couple. I know Raleigh. Um, North Carolina has a couple and like those bigger cities like that are going to be more likely to have a specific gym for that. Um, And there are also things that you can kind of rig up um, at home too. So if you want to incorporate some like grip work, you can um, like they have hang boards or things like that. Um, This is probably not the norm, um, but I did build a salmon ladder myself. So you can always build obstacles if you are also kind of into woodworking um, and things like that. So a lot of people do that as well if they're not in an area that has a ninja gym. And then even with competitions, it's not necessarily just Ninja Warrior. There are ninja leagues as well um, that you can do a competition with just locally too, yeah. That's cool. So the answer then would be yes, if if somebody's listening and they're just like a fit person and this sounds like fun, with uh, how how much training do you think again let's assume the person listening um, they lift weights they do some sort of cardio maybe they play a sport so maybe they have some athletic or some athleticism as well but they've never done any any ninja stuff Uh, how much training specifically for that would 
do you say it takes to where you could have fun with it? And, and if I'm thinking of myself, if I were to do it, uh, I wouldn't have delusions of grandeur about, you know, being on national television. Uh, but I would, if, if I couldn't get at least good or, or at least decent, like by my standards, which would mean, um, maybe compete in some little league and not just be dead last <laughs> by a country mile, uh, then, I wouldn't be interested. And and so if you were to tell me, yeah, Mike, so you're a pretty fit dude. You have cardio, you have strength. If you were to train, if you had access to a ninja gym and you could train for a couple of months, um, you could put a few hours a week into it for a couple of months, then you would be good enough to have some fun with it and you could go participate in a league. Is that, do you think that's, that's realistic or is it, is it a lot harder than that? Um, so it depends, I guess, from person to person. So what I would say is what makes like ninja as a sport stand out is the community aspect of it because it is such a new sport. The community is amazing. So you'll go into a ninja gym, everyone will be supporting everyone. Um, and that makes it a lot of fun, no matter how mm. good you are. Um, so I think just day one and going in and having fun as the goal, um, is really what makes ninja stand out and makes it accessible to really anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That makes sense. It's not, yeah. not, it's not how I'm like just wired. Uh, I'm such yeah. a performance kind of goal oriented person. Uh, but there are certain things that people would say are fun. Like take golf. I think golf is fun, but that's because I'm okay at it. I wouldn't even say I'm good by, by, by like objective standards. I'm good enough to have fun, but but I, I do warn people who they'll hear that I play golf and be like, oh, maybe I'll come play golf with you. I'm like, I'm just warning you. It is really not fun. It takes a bit of work to even get good enough to have fun. Like in the beginning, you're not even going to hit the ball. You're not going to have a good time. I'm just warning you. But it sounds like uh, this is not that. Yeah. Uh, at least with my experience going into a ninja gym for the first time, I just felt very at home supportive people. If you ask a question, like what's the technique for this obstacle, someone will answer that for you and cheer you on and things like that. So, and anything can really be scaled to your level too, to some extent. So whether it's just hanging from a bar, um, and building that strength, um, or doing something hanging on from like a ledge, um, as well. So you can scale it based on where you're at too. Yeah. 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 It sounds like fun. So let's, let's, uh, let's move on to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is body weight exercises that you think, uh, maybe not everyone, I'm going to let you, uh, tell who you think can benefit from including body, body weight exercises in their training routine and maybe who would benefit less or where, or who it would make no sense for. But, um, and, and this would be specifically for people like me and a lot of the people listening who primarily lift weights, uh, primarily just do a lot of barbell and dumbbell work. Uh, my training does involve a couple of body weight exercises here and there. I'll do some pull-ups or chin-ups and, you know, in a, in a training cycle, usually one of those are going to be in, in a workout somewhere. Um, I'll rotate dips in and out and a few others, but most of the work that I do 90 to 95% barbell dumbbell. And that's probably also the case for a lot of the people listening. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts, uh, on, on how people like me and, and the rest of us can benefit from maybe a little bit more body weight training and it could be included in the strength training workouts, or it could be done separately or, or some other type of setup. Yeah. So I think body weight exercises themselves are part of like fundamental movements. So just as you can do things with weight, you can do things without weight. So you can have variations of like squats, lunges, carries, pulls, pushes, and all different planes. Um, and you can progress them in different ways to make them harder for body weight specifically. So instead of just doing a squat, you can do a pistol squat, um, just and focusing on full range and the control aspect of it versus just lifting as much as you can. Um, so you can focus more on mobility, um, and more strength at end ranges to some extent versus with weights, you are typically just going in a like mid range. Sometimes every once in a while you'll go end range, but you can go 
a little bit deeper and focusing on that control and the quality of the movement with body weight exercises. And practically speaking, what's uh, the benefit of, of doing that? So you want to be able to move in any way that life requires you to, if that makes sense. So um, for example, if your lats are tight and you can't reach overhead all the way, that might become a limiting factor in daily life or even working out um, with what you want to do. So being able to maintain that range and have strength through that range can also reduce injury as well. Because if you don't have the balance between the mobility and the strength and the flexibility, that's where things like overuse injuries or even acute injury, it can predispose you to an acute injury as well um, and things like that. So it just provides a little bit more balance to your training. And do you have some specific examples of bodyweight exercises that uh, you like to include in addition to your strength training work or that you think people who do a lot of strength training should consider including and, and why? I mean, you mentioned pistol squats. Is that one that you would include or is that just an example of? That was more so just an example. Yeah, just an example that's kind of unique that you can't do otherwise. Yeah. Um, another thing could be like a Cossack squat. So a deep lateral lunge to some extent, um, getting that end range control, end range hip, knee, ankle mobility. Um, and then also you're having a pretty good stretch on your adductors or the inside of your thigh, um, is another example of a more advanced body weight exercise, um, that can be modified with the depth, um, based on your level. And that can be a different movement pattern than someone normally does as well. Um, other examples, I mean, the pistol squat as well can be another example because you need a lot of ankle mobility for that, just for yeah. the depth and yeah. the knee and the hip as and, well. And that, can, that is a common limiting factor on uh, any sort of squat that many people mm -hmm. don't realize. They don't realize that it's not their hamstrings that are limiting them. Uh, it's actually... Their, their ankles can't mm -hmm. move enough to allow them to reach depth properly. Yes, and they, definitely. you know, they need, they can only get to depth if they uh, have plates under their feet, for example. Yeah. And then even like going back to the pistol squat, it can demonstrate some weakness in the hip as well. If you're like knee falls inward and it can highlight some areas to work on, to improve overall patterns um, and can help you progress even your squat, for an example. If you notice with the pistol squat, your knee falls inward, it's like, okay, maybe I need to work on lateral hip stability. Yep. So sides of the hip strength, and then that can potentially help you break through a plateau in your squatting yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and anybody listening, uh, if you're squatting and you're feeling your your knees start to to move inward which is generally what happens is you get deeper into a set and it's getting harder if you consciously uh, engage your hip muscles to to keep those knees in line with your toes just pointing a little bit out don't let them move in at all you'll probably notice that your performance actually is a little bit better um, by engaging those muscles uh, that that allow you to, to spread your legs, you can generate a little bit more force in the exercise. And um, the, I, I still have to pay attention to that myself. If the weight is, is pretty heavy, and again, let's say it's my third or fourth set, and um, within a, a couple of reps of my rep target, which is gonna be fairly close to failure, I, I sometimes have to feel like I am forcing my knees outward uh, but they're actually not moving. They're just staying in place. And I know because I'm on camera, I record all my workouts and post them on Instagram so I can look at my form to see what I did versus what it felt like I was doing. And uh, that that's still something I have to pay attention to. Yeah. And I think anyone at all levels, especially when they're pushing themselves towards their max, that's a very common form or like a break in form, if that makes sense. So... Totally. And uh, just a little tip for people when you are trying to fix different elements of, of your technique, and this applies in my experience to any athletic activity, uh, you, you often have to exaggerate whatever it is that you're trying to correct. So if your knees do tend to buckle inward, 
uh, as you get deeper into a set, especially in the way it's heavy, then you're, you're going to have to feel like you are spreading your legs by, you know, uh, that, that you're pushing your knees to several inches outside of their starting position just to get them to stay still. And, you know, I've gone through a lot of that in learning golf, another good example where it could, because the proper golf swing is not how you would naturally and instinctively swing, a a golf club, you, you instinctively, you kind of swing it like an ax and the proper swing is, is a very unnatural. It, it involves when, when you are transitioning from the top of the swing into actually coming down at the ball, you have to externally rotate your, the, the what's called the trail arm, the arm that is, if you're, if you're a righty, then it would be your right arm. If you're a lefty, it's your left. And you have to internally rotate your, your lead arm and you have to, uh, keep your, your, your lead arm, uh, on your chest. And it's just, it's just a weird movement. And to, to learn it, I've had to try to over-exaggerate that movement to where I'm feeling like I'm externally rotating to the point where I'm going to like break my shoulder. Uh, and then I go on camera and that is just enough to, to make it look right. So, um, the same thing applies to, to weightlifting and, and correcting any element of the form that, uh, doesn't just easily resolve the, the solution in my experience has generally been to just exaggerate whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. Try to do it five times more than you should. And then you may actually get to where you should be. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. The exaggeration um, can be used and you can also use other like external cues. So like for the example of the squat, you can also use a band around your knees to push into the band outward to exaggerate that movement as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I haven't done that before, but um, that that is uh, makes sense. And and I mean, I, I can think to golf and different training aids that that provide external cues. Are there any other examples of external cues or even internal cues that uh, you found helpful just for correcting common technique faults? Um, also thinking about almost corkscrewing the feet into the ground for a squat. So that'll cue your hip external rotators to come on um, and kind of almost turning. You're not actually turning your feet out, but you are trying to. Yep simulate that motion. Um, and that'll help cue those hips to come on to help that control as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, so coming back to body weight exercises, are there any upper body body weight exercises that you particularly like, uh, for the same reasons that you, you like a couple of the lower body ones that you've shared? Um, I personally am probably a little bit biased towards handstands. Um, but we can also, um, talk about like pull-ups as well. Well, do, um, do you think that yeah. there are benefits? Uh, I mean, I, I can't, I can't do a handstand. I can do it on a wall. I <laughs> I've done it to like demonstrate handstand pushups, but what, what are there benefits to learning how to do a proper handstand? Um, it depends really on your goals. Um, I think there can be, depending on the person, you do need adequate shoulder motion um, and control and strength and body awareness, which can be helpful depending what your goals are, are again. So um, would that be more relevant to athletic activities or uh, or maybe even some weightlifting, like let's say some overhead pressing, like maybe mm -hmm. Olympic type movements or, or yeah. maybe even a standing press of some kind? That can potentially be because it is working that overhead strength and stability um, and control. So if you can do a handstand, you are controlling your body weight on your hands versus a barbell, especially when you're pressing heavier weight, um, you might have a little bit more control at that end range. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is big with any kind of standing press because, uh, slight inefficiencies can make it a lot harder. Like you can lose a couple of reps per set, uh, with just eh, minor problems in, in the movement pattern, just because it's, it's, just one of the most difficult exercises, uh, to, you know, 135 pounds overhead for, for anybody, unless, unless we're talking about a 275 pound strong man, but, uh, for, for the rest of us being able to, to press 135, like if you can press 135 for 10 or so, that is very strong. Whereas on the bench press as for a guy, you're, you know, mm -hmm. most guys could do that probably within their first couple of months. Yeah. 
And I think it's very interesting coaching people on handstands specifically, you realize how many people don't actually have full shoulder motion. So that's like common reason why you see those shape errors, like the banana back handstands and things like that, um, where you have an arch in your back and your rib cage is sticking out. And it's not because of core control. Like a lot of people think it's really just um, shoulder range of motion. And, and how does that work exactly? What's the problem? So, um, because if you can't get your arms directly over your head, so, um, 180 degrees of shoulder flexion, so your arms and your mid back are in one line, then your shoulders are going to be a little bit closed because you're going to have an angle there. And then your hips and your back is going to want to compensate. So you're going to have a little bit of an arch in your back. Yeah. To adjust the center of gravity. So you try to try to find your balance. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And that, then that's important for overhead pressing. Correct. Uh, all, all types of overhead pressing. If you can't mm-hmm. get your head through the window is kind of the cue and get that weight directly overhead, you, you're never going to be as strong as you can be. Mm-hmm. And then you can also say end range of pull-ups as well too, um, because getting that, the scapular control, especially at that end range, um, people can be limited to if they're not, if they don't have that end range shoulder motion. And so you're talking here at the, at the bottom of the pull-up just for people, Correct. maybe if, if they, uh, if they don't understand or, or just, they haven't heard that term end range, maybe you want to share just quickly. What does that mean? Yeah. So end range is just, um, at the end of your range of motion. So towards, um, maximal overhead reaching, for example, or like at the bottom of a pull-up, your arms are directly over your head. Yeah. As um, opposed to the top of the pull-up. Cause some people, they, right. some people might think, well, those are both uh, end points of sorts. End, yes. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, but end range joint motion, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Any other body weight exercises that you think people should consider? Like, uh, I it doesn't it doesn't have to be uh, body weight per se. It depends, I guess, um, on, on how strong somebody is or where they're at in their training. Um, but I am a big proponent of lunge exercises simply because they involve training the hips in the way that they're naturally made to move. I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. And then again, any other body weight exercises that people should consider, including in their predominantly just kind of barbell, dumbbell, you know, get bigger, get stronger kind of training. Yeah. So I definitely, I like lunges because they progress towards single leg stuff, um, which requires a little bit more hip stability and hip control and looking from a clinician perspective and just observing what movements people normally do. A lot of people don't do as much lateral or side stepping Mm -hmm. work, whether it's in daily life or in the gym. And that can cause um, hip, knee, back um, issues as well. Um, So that's just from a overall health perspective, that can be good. How would you program, you had mentioned Cossack squats, I believe. Yeah. So Cossack squats can be used. um, I really, honestly, for lateral hip stability, I like single leg RDLs. So just that single leg hip hinge motion um, and focusing on keeping those hips square towards the ground. So your hip bones are facing towards the ground. That'll really, I personally find that um, really hits your side of the hip pretty well. Also things like lateral lunges, um, even like banded sidestepping as like a burner or like superset, depending on what you're doing as well. And so these would be probably treat these like accessory exercises. You would do yes. them later in a workout yeah. after you've already done your heavy, hard stuff. And overall, just from a training perspective, looking at what movements that you typically do. And I like to use like the phrase of like a movement diet. So like, just like with your nutritional diet, you want to have a variety. So, um, looking at movement. So are you doing a lot of frontal plane? So forward and back or like side to side motions for the frontal plane, things like that. So incorporating all different planes, all different types of movements, just to get a little bit of that movement diet in, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, And that'll help reduce injury risk as well. Yeah. I like that concept. And, and depending on the exercises you're choosing, you'll probably, uh, gain muscle and strength faster too. I mean, that's been shown yes. just in 
terms of using a variety of, of weightlifting exercises, training muscles in different directions through different ranges of motion at different angles. Uh, the evidence does, does seem to support that that approach to training is ultimately more effective than using fewer, uh, which is one of my, uh, one of the points of my case for including isolation exercises in strength training, because of course there are many people though, uh, who would say, nah, if, if you're doing your big barbell work and maybe, maybe there's some chin-ups in there, maybe there, maybe there's some barbell curls, maybe there are some dumbbell rows, maybe, but if you are really focusing on your big compound exercises, everything else is kind of superfluous. I, I disagree for a few different reasons, but one of them is this point that there, there are several studies that have shown that again, this point of training muscles in different ways, it, it doesn't just make your training more interesting, which is another one of the reasons why I think it's worth doing actually, but, yeah. but, but technically it appears to be more effective. Yeah. And even with those like compound lifts and things like that, sometimes you don't notice compensations that your body is Correct, doing yeah. over time. Um, so for example, like in a squat, you might be using like your hamstrings more than your glutes and you, doing those accessory exercises might help maintain that glute work and other things like that. So it can just provide overall balance in training too. If you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, definitely check out my health and fitness books, including the number one best-selling weightlifting books for men and women in the world, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger, and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger, as well as the leading flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef. You know, I, a couple of years ago, became aware of a muscle imbalance. Really, it was like it's kind of an entire side of my body when I was squatting. What I would tend to do is as I would get deeper into sets and it's getting harder, I would tend to uh, lean a little bit more to my right. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm right-handed, right-legged, right-footed. And so that was just my, uh, my inclination was to go to my, my stronger side. And I mean, it was subtle, which is why I didn't notice it until I started noticing that my right leg uh, was just generally sore from, from lower body training, uh, than, than my left. And so then I started paying attention and realized like, oh yeah, I am shifting. If I were, if I were on, uh, what do they call, um, if I, what do they call them? Pressure pads? Again, I know mm -hmm. that I know them from golf, but if I, if I were on a device where, uh, I could see the force plates, yeah, force yeah. plates, there you go. So, so if I were on force plates, I, I would have seen definitely a shift. Maybe it would have only been, you know, 60, 40. I don't think it would have been as dramatic as 70, 30 or 80, 20, but that slight difference by, by putting a bit more uh, pressure on my right and, and demanding a bit more from my right side over the course of months. Uh, again, I started to notice like, yeah, I am pretty consistently, I'm a little bit more sore in my right. And I also actually, now that I remember, I remembered a little bit more quad definition and just development on my right side, uh, uh compared to my left. So, um, with, with exercises that would be more traditionally thought of as accessory or isolation, lower body, like take a split squat, for example, um, you can't have that problem with it or a lunge. You can't have that problem with it. And for people who, um, are, are curious how I corrected it, it was paying attention on my bilateral, my, my, my leg press and my squat and so forth, just paying attention to not do it. And, and I, I did have to exaggerate. So to, I had to feel like as, as it was getting hard that I was preferring my left side, but I knew in fact, I was not, that's actually just what, that's what balanced feels like. And cause I had gotten used to imbalanced, but thought I was balanced. Um, and then with the bilateral kind of isolation exercises, starting with my weaker leg. So starting with my left leg and then ending the sets on that leg, as opposed to starting with my strong leg. And then my strong leg would consistently get uh, a little bit more training, a little bit more stimulus because as I come into like rep nine or 10 or whatever, and then I, I get it with my right leg because with an isolation exercise, I'm generally going to go pretty close to failure, maybe not to failure, but I'm going to probably be within one rep of it. Whereas on my compound exercises, I'll probably leave generally I'm leaving one good rep left, maybe two good reps. 
Whereas again, isolation, I don't mind pushing up to where I will fail on the next rep. And so what would happen if I started with my strong limb is I, I may end up actually failing on my weaker limb because I figure like, okay, um, I think I have one good rep left here on my strong limb. And then I go to do it on my weak and I can't even do it. So now my stronger limb got a little bit more training. So I flipped it around and I would start those sets with my weaker limb and let them lead. Um, and so what would ha what happened in the beginning is I was ending sets with, let's say one good rep left, maybe zero good reps left, not two failure, but like I'm very close on my weaker limb, but I still felt like I had a couple reps left in my stronger limb and that's okay. Um, so I think it's a, it's a helpful tip for people who are looking to correct muscle imbalances or, or just prevent them. Yes, definitely. And then also like when you're doing a bilateral exercise, you can also use like a mirror or even video feedback, um, just to check your form as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can be tricky though. Like in the case of what I just described, I don't know if I would have seen it because I wasn't, it wasn't even a lateral shift of the hips. I mean, if it was, it was very slight. Maybe I would have seen it if I really would have paid attention, but it was mostly yeah. something that was a, a matter of feeling it, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. And it sometimes just takes as well, like a fairly good trained eye. Um, so like as a physical therapist, I look at people's movement patterns right. on a daily basis and things like that. So, um, and you kind of, to some extent have to point out. So like I'll sometimes break out the mirror when someone's relearning a squat after, for example, a knee injury and you kind of have to point out, it's like, oh yeah, I am shifting over to the other side. And then like you mentioned, over-exaggerating going onto that side. Um, and so using that cueing can also help in addition to that verbal cueing too. Yep. Yep. Um, and for people listening, if you haven't videoed yourself doing, I'd say it's probably most useful with the more technically demanding exercises. I'm not sure if you're going to uh, benefit much from like a lat pull down video, maybe. Um, but the, it's, it's pretty simple. Just kind of pull it straight down and uh, don't lean back too much and get it to your collarbone. Okay, good job. Um, but with the more technical exercises, if you haven't ever videoed yourself from a few different angles, or if you haven't done it in a long time, I'd recommend doing it because, um, often with it, the, a squat is, is not of course as complicated as, I don't know, a pole vault or like hitting a fastball, uh, or, or a golf swing, but there is enough technicality to it that what you feel like you're doing can actually not be what you're doing. And mm -hmm. you'll never catch the, the, um, the, the error in your technique unless you actually see what you're doing. So, um, it's, yeah. it's useful to take your phone. Get, I mean, I, I have a little, uh, just a little tripod with, with, articulated arms that I can just wrap around things. And I mean, I do it just to post workouts to social media, to show people that I practice what I preach. Uh, but for, if I, if I weren't doing that, I still would video, not all of my workouts, but on a fairly regular basis, I would just take some footage of my squatting, my deadlifting, my overhead pressing, my bench pressing. That's probably all. And, and just see how does it look? Can I, can I improve anything? Is there, is there anything that's obviously not right? And that just can be helpful for, uh, for, for everybody, especially yeah. as you get more experienced, the weights start getting pretty heavy and it gets, uh, it gets harder to maintain good form. Yeah, definitely. And then even um, looking at different angles too. Um, so like looking from like the back of your squat versus the side of your squat can show different things. Um, and like even with like a pull up looking at your shoulder blades um, and how symmetrical they are um, can be helpful too. And if they're not in that case, that's an interesting point. What does that indicate and, and what should somebody do? So it can indicate weakness on one side versus the other. Um, so if you're kind of shrugging your shoulder up, um, then it can be just like the muscles that stabilize your shoulder blade can be weak um, or some other, it could also be like range of motion. You're compensating for that too. Um, it can be quite a number of different factors, which is kind of hard to say yeah. what exactly, but um, you do want a symmetrical, smooth shoulder blade motion in the pull up and lat pull down, for example. And it also can just be a bad habit, right? Yes. Also that, uh, that that's most of, most of the, 
things that I've corrected in the the form for the big exercises for me were just yeah just bad habits. I, I just had learned it a little bit incorrectly early on and wasn't on camera and then did a bunch of reps incorrectly. So it just kind of ingrained that muscle memory and then had to unlearn it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this, this last um, thing I wanted to, to get your uh, insights on, and, and that's working around injuries. And I think we should talk specifically about repetitive stress injuries because acute injuries are in some ways easier to work around because you have to, because you can't just push through it. Uh, it's too painful. Um, whereas with repetitive stress injuries, and I've made this mistake, I'm sure you have, I've gotten better with it. I can, I can say that, um, it's very easy to just keep going and figure "Eh, it'll probably get better. And it doesn't get better. It gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse until finally, um, you're forced to, to do something. But, um, how do you approach, uh, avoiding, like not letting it get that far. And then if, if it does, for whatever reason, what do you do next? So I often, it's looking at the movement patterns and noticing slight variations in that. So like you mentioned the squat earlier, shifting to the side that can potentially down the line lead to whether it's like a hip knee, something going on there. So maintaining proper form during your exercises. And then if you do notice, you're like, oh, I feel, for example, like my shoulder during a pull-up, video it and see if you notice any asymmetries, um, anything that you're doing slightly differently um, from side to side, and then see if you can correct that. Um, And if you need a second opinion, whether it's like a coach at that point, um, or even a physical therapist, if you're not able to self-address those things, that might be an opportunity um, because you want to prevent things before they become big issues. And that'll save you on training time. Yeah. I mean, getting, getting a form check every so often, if Mm -hmm. you're taking the videos is probably worth it. Uh, so long as the, yes. the price is reasonable. Definitely. Cause it shouldn't take much time if the coach is experienced and if they offer that, which is something that uh, I've, I've had a note that it may make sense for, for Legion to start offering because, um, we have a coaching program that, um, does quite well. And we have a lot of clients and we have a lot of great success stories. And I, and I've thought that that may be a, I mean, it wouldn't be a much of a moneymaker, but that's not really the point. It's just, it's just helpful for, for people to get, uh, another set of eyes, an expert set of eyes on what they're doing just to confirm, um, in, and especially to this point you're making preventatively, I, I, yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense as opposed to waiting for there to be a problem. And now you're trying to figure out what's wrong and now you're trying to train around it. You're trying not to make it worse. Right. And that's part of the reason I actually do offer like movement screens. So you can focus on a specific body part for a specific exercise that you want to improve. So if it's like, I've had people come for their squats and they had a slight lateral shift and we were able to address that, know what's going on there. Here's some exercises to address that. And it's just like a quick, yeah, basically assessment, see where you're at and know how to fix those things. And it's more of a giving you the tools to do that. Yep. going forward. Yep. That makes sense. So that can definitely be helpful. Another thing is if it does become an issue, seeking care from a physical therapist. So if you are in the United States, some States do have direct access where you can go directly to a physical therapist without seeing a doctor first. Obviously it's going to depend on the country and state that you're in, but looking up those things, you might be able to just walk into a local physical therapist office, set up an appointment and go from there. At what point would you say it makes sense to do that. And the reason why I ask is I I agree. And I did that myself when I was having biceps tendon problems and like in the Mm -hmm. bicipital groove and it just wasn't going away. And I wanted to just work with somebody who knows more about uh, anatomy and, and the the musculature and how it works than I do. And let's just get to a, a resolution quickly because it was really annoying. And looking back, I, I should have probably done it sooner. I was stubborn and just kept on trying to train through it. And I've had this discussion with uh, personal friends even who 
um, ha- I have like one, my brother-in-law is having some shoulder issues right now. And I'm like, dude, go see a physical therapist. Like just, <laughs> you want to know what's going on because it, it may be relatively insignificant or it may be significant. You may have a small tear in, uh, in a muscle and you don't want to just lay off of it for two weeks and then see what happens when you load it again. And he hasn't taken my advice yet. And, and I understand again, I was, I was the same way previously, but now going forward, I would, I would be much quicker to go see somebody if there was a a problem that I couldn't resolve on my own with the obvious kind of just home remedies, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, and that question is very nuanced because you have a ton of different factors going in for different people. So like finances are going to play a huge role with medical care, um, access to quality professionals. So if you're in more of a rural area, you might have someone who's, and you're big in the gym, whether it's just daily, like lifting for health, or if you're competing in like CrossFit, for example, you might not have access to a provider that knows as much about that sport or like your goals as you would like. Um, Typically in a bigger city, it's easier to have more options. And then you also have, is your insurance accepted and things like that, especially in the United States there specifically. Let's assume those aren't issues though. Yeah, so in an ideal world, I would probably say once you start noticing something and it doesn't go away or start improving within, depending on how frequently you're doing the activity, a week or two, um, I would go ahead and get it checked out. I mean, the worst case scenario is, nope, you're good. Just give it a little bit more time, continue what you're doing, and it's peace of mind. Now, what about the severity, though? Yeah, so... Because just to give an example, mm-hmm. um, I, a couple of months ago, I was noticing that my... So when I was getting back into golfing, because I, I was out of it for a bit, and I was getting back into it, and golf is a... It, it's a very asymmetrical sport. The mm-hmm. swing is very asymmetrical, and so it you know, stresses different parts of the body in different ways. And so I started to notice that my left forearm was just kind of irritated and my left biceps a little bit irritated. And so um, what I did was I just modified my pulling. So um, if I if I had my, my palm facing down and I was pulling, it just, my, my, my form and my biceps, they just didn't like it. But if my palms were facing each other, it felt totally fine. And so I just stopped doing the thing that was aggravating it. And, uh, it was probably three or four weeks of, um, of, it wasn't, it wasn't even really to the level of, I guess you could say it was pain, but I'd give it like a, maybe two or three out of 10. It was, it was just a little bit annoying. I just didn't want it to to turn into an actual problem, but it did take several weeks and I had to, let's see, I also on my, my biceps curling, I believe, um, I had to modify, I'm trying to remember, cause again, it was months ago. Um, it was uh, having my, my forearms, I believe allowing them to bow inward a little bit as I was raising the weight helped. I don't remember exactly, but it took several weeks, at least four weeks for it to go away, but it did go away. And so in that case, uh, I'm not sure if it would have been warranted or even productive to see, you know what I mean? Like a physical therapist probably would have said like, well, why don't you just stop doing the thing that's pissing it off and just let it get better? Okay. (laughs) I would probably say a, a doctor would be more likely to say that than a physical therapist, but possibly depending on the therapist might say lay off of it and then properly load those tissues and then go back to it. Um, cause it could be drastically changing any activity rapidly, um, can create like an overuse thing. So potentially because of the demand required from the wrist flexors and extensors and the motion of the biceps might've, and it was just a different motion that you weren't used to recently. Um, it could have just been the load that was placed through it. And yeah, it might've taken like a month for those symptoms to resolve, but were they gradually getting better throughout? Yeah. So if it's continuing to stay the same, it's different than if it's improving. Agreed. Agreed. 
And that's just, that's just an important point. It's kind of like with weightlifting, right? Progress is progress. Uh, and, and of course though, if it were a lot more painful and it were only improving a little bit, and if it looked like, well, shit at this rate, it's going to be six months until I can just, you know, pull with my palms down or do a normal biceps curl, then I would have also, uh, I would have thought about it differently and probably went and seen someone. But in my experience, the little kind of niggling, uh, aches and pains that you get, uh, weightlifting and, and if you do enough of it and you make enough progress, you are going to experience these things to some degree. I, I think that I yes, you can, do, yeah. you can do everything right. Preventatively, everything we've been talking about. And one day you're going to wake up and your knee is just going to kind of hurt and you don't really know why, uh, or maybe you do know why, but, uh, or, or it's going to be your elbow or it's going to be your wrist, or it's going to be some muscle and you're just going to have to figure out how to work around it. And I agree that the point is, um, if it's not severe, hopefully it hasn't gotten to that point and you can work around it and you can experience at least slight improvements and it's not going to take a year at this rate kind of thing, then you just keep going. Would you agree? Partly. Yes. Partly. I would probably take a look and see if you notice any asymmetries from side to side. So for example, if you're, you wake up and one day and your knee is bothering you, okay. Is your strength symmetrical on both sides? Is your range of motion symmetrical on both sides? And then specifically for the knee, you or with really any joint, you want to look at the joint above and below and make sure because that's going to affect that joint. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure you have strength and motion in the joints above and below. And if you do notice any asymmetries, potentially working on that, whether it's mobility, flexibility or strength. And how would that look in the case of the knee? Because that's obviously a very common problem. So you're talking about the hips and, and the ankles and the ankles. Yeah. So, I mean, just general motion of the hip, are you able to bring it back as far as you can without compensating for the, or with the back? Um, are you able to bring it up towards your chest without rounding the back to the same extent as the other side? And then looking at hip rotation as well, um, are they symmetrical and even? Um, and then looking at your strength. So bringing the leg out to the side, um, is that symmetrical? So um, a way that you can assess it. So going back to the pistol squat assessment, are you able to go down the same depth on both sides? Are you able to control it the same way on either side? Would an assisted pistol squat be useful for yes, that? Yes. I mean, it's yeah. So like a pistol squat, I guess would be an extreme example of that. Um, just cause it's a unilateral exercise yeah. focusing on one side. And, and for people listening, assisted is just, you have the, whichever leg you're squatting down on, you have that, hand on something just to give you some stability. Yep. Or you can even go a single leg squat to a chair, um, can potentially, right. depending yeah. on your level, give you the same information or similar information. Um, and if you, if it's a balance issue, then you can always hold on to something with one hand as well. Um, cause your knee might go in and out depending on balance too. And what about the ankle? Um, the ankle, you can like bringing it up as far as you can towards you, um, looking at, is it your calf flexibility or is it your ankle joint mobility? And there are self mobilizations that you can do for your ankle if it is stiff too. um, also looking at your foot control, does your arch collapse in as you do squats, for example, things like that. And then you can strengthen those muscles. You can improve that mobility as you see And the foot and ankle are a little bit more nuanced, I guess, than other body parts. Cause there's a ton of joints and small muscles in there, but yeah. And the point here, right. Is that you're comparing both sides and you're yes, trying yeah. So if your right knee is hurting and then you are running through some of these things that you mentioned and you notice that, yeah, your, your right ankle is just a lot less mobile than your left. Well, now you have something you can address that may be contributing to this knee problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, anything else with repetitive stress injuries in terms of, okay, you have one, unfortunately it has happened. And what do you do now? I would definitely then go to a medical provider, um, whether it's a doctor who would refer you to a physical therapist or a physical therapist, because it's, if it's a musculoskeletal injury, so bones, joints, muscles, things like that. And what are some of the things then that you would do with somebody who comes to you and they have this issue? 
to some extent, it would be screening their emotion, looking at their strength, and then you can assess functional patterns as well and noticing those differences from side to side, any abnormal movement patterns, and then addressing the causes of those movement patterns. So you're addressing the cause of those symptoms, not just the symptom itself. Sure. And then technique wise, would, would you do something like you might, you might change how they're loading an exercise. So, um, let's say they, there's something up with their wrist or, or their shoulder and they can't squat a barbell, but maybe they could do a leg press or a belt squat. Yeah. So, um, temporarily, definitely you can, um, just like with an acute injury as well, you kind of use those strategies, changing the loading of those things. So avoiding painful activities while you're doing other things to strengthen that area. So it's not avoid it and you never can do it again. It's avoid it temporarily so you can strengthen those tissues back up at an appropriate load to get back to that activity. Yeah. Blood flow restricted training can be useful for that as well. Just throwing it out there for limbs. Yep. And I believe there's a fair amount of good research on that as well. Yep. What about training a non-injured side to maintain muscle and for potential crossover effects? So there are definitely neurologic crossover effects when you do train the opposite side. And do you want to just explain what that means? Yeah. So basically you can retain some strength gains on the injured side if you just train the opposite side because our nervous system works overall. So you might get some firing essentially um, on that side, but not strong enough to create a muscle contraction, if that makes sense. So research shows that you can maintain more strength when you do non-injured side training while you're not able to use that injured side. Which can can be kind of counterintuitive because when I was in my 20s, I uh, fractured my wrist and I was in a full arm cast for six weeks and I didn't know very much about training in general at the time, but instinctively, I, I didn't think that I should train my right arm because it may help my left arm. I did it just because I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm going to have one weird atrophy armed anyway. I might as well just keep training my right arm. Uh, but I, I probably helped my left arm a little bit in doing that and then was able to get back to normal faster once I got the cast off. Yeah. And a caveat to that would be depending on the severity of the injured side, um, because a lot of times daily life will require you to use your opposite side. So if you're right-handed, your right hand is injured and you have to use your left arm a lot for things, um, just that can be more stress on it than than what it can handle. And so sometimes it's not uncommon for if you're like having a right shoulder injury, then your left shoulder starts to bother you as you're modifying your activity. Or like if you're on crutches, your opposite hip starts to bother you or things like that. Um, So I would be careful about that. Yes. In theory, I would say, go ahead. Yes. Do train the opposite side, but if you can train the opposite side and it's not bothering you, go for it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So there is a little bit of a balance to that um, where it's not, you can't go just like ham training your other side because you do still want to be mindful of the demands that you're placing on that side. Yeah, that's a good point because somebody might just become too zealous and think, well, if I, if I train the shit out of my other side, then maybe I'll get even better crossover effects, you know? Yeah. And like, for example, I had shoulder surgery at the beginning of 2020. Um, I was like, yes, I'm going to go ham training my left side. Um, And then it turns out I was not able to do a whole lot of training on the left side because daily life was doing enough. So um, just being mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Any other comments on, on this repetitive stress injury point? Um, I would also just take a look at overall basic health. So making sure you're getting enough sleep, making sure you're hydrating, getting proper nutrition. Um, you can even bias a little bit more towards foods that are anti-inflammatory, things like ginger and whatnot can make, it's not going to like make or break anything, but it might help you a little bit get faster or better faster. Um, and just making sure you're recovering well and really know your limitations, ask questions to the appropriate people, and really use your resources as best you can. And, and one thing I'll add that helped uh, with my biceps tendonitis issue was regular icing. It, it made, a, it made <laughs> a noticeable difference because I wasn't doing it initially, but I was doing the other stuff that I was supposed to be doing. I was seeing a physical therapist and we, we zeroed in on, really it was the, 
the primary issue was a very tight subscap muscle on, on my mm -hmm. right side. And, and he, it was, I mean, I, it's in the, in the scheme of pain, it's not like it was torture, but it was pretty painful for him to get in there and, and work it initially. Mm -hmm. And then as he continued to work through it, it got to where it was only mildly uncomfortable. And the correlation was, was obvious. Like as my subscap just settled down and was less aggravated, uh, the, the biceps tendonitis issue was, was slowly just disappearing. Uh, but the addition of regular icing, I would do, Oh, was, this was, this was years ago. I would do, I think two or three kind of 15 to 20 minute ice sessions, uh, a day basically. And, and I was completely avoiding any exercises in the gym that would aggravate it. So that was no barbell pressing of any kind. If I remember correctly, no dumbbell pressing, at least in the beginning, I could do flies. I could do dips, um, that the dips didn't, didn't bother me. I thought they would have, but they didn't. And, um, I think I found one or two machines that, that I could do, but, but absolutely no barbell dumbbell, dumbbell pressing. Uh, but when I started adding the icing, I just noticed that, um, the problem resolved noticeably faster. Yeah. And depending on the person, um, ice or heat can yeah. have different responses. I know. That's why I'm just saying like and, that, yeah. that for me, that, that, and I, and I tried heat as well, but it was ice that did it. Yeah. And to be honest, the research kind of goes back and forth about which one is best. I so I typically just tell my patients, Hey, whichever one feels better. If you notice it making a difference, go for it. Um, research does show that it doesn't necessarily do a whole lot long-term by itself, but when it's combined with the exercise, um, specifically targeting that area and your deficits, then it can potentially be more beneficial that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well, this has been a great discussion, Laura. That's everything I had for you. And uh, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. Let's wrap up with where people can find you and how they can reach out to you if they want your help with something. Um, and if there's any, just anything else uh, that you have to offer, uh, whether it's free or, or paid or whatever that you want people to know about. Yeah. So I spend most of my time on Instagram. Um, and it's at Paradigm of Perfection. And then my website is paradigmofperfection.com. Um, and then you can also email me um, as well at paradigmperfection at gmail.com. Um, sorry, then, was that Paradigm of Perfection at gmail? Yes. Okay, good. Yep. Just all one word. Um, and then I do offer individualized workout programming. Um, and I do, like I mentioned before, offer those, the movement screens for that specific area. If you're like, this is like slightly off, but not enough to see a medical provider yet. Um, then I can take a look at that as well. Um, but yeah, I spend most of my time on Instagram. So that's probably the best way, um, just to reach out. So cool. Perfect. Well, thanks again for, for taking the time. This was great. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I hope you liked this episode. I hope you found it helpful. And if you did, subscribe to the show because it makes sure that you don't miss new episodes. And it also helps me because it increases the rankings of the show a little bit, which of course then makes it a little bit more easily found by other people who may like it just as much as you. And if you didn't like something about this episode or about the show in general, or if you have uh, ideas or suggestions or just feedback to share, shoot me an email, mike at muscleforlife.com, muscleforlife.com, and let me know what I could do better or just uh, what your thoughts are about maybe what you'd like to see me do in the future. I read everything myself. I'm always looking for new ideas and constructive feedback. So thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope to hear from you soon.